confess that you are worthy, that you deserve all the honor and the glory and the praise. You deserve our worship. Lord, we know that we're not worthy to be called the children of God. But by your grace and because of your mercy to us, you have redeemed us, you've saved us, and you've made us part of your family. We're your children, Father. We are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. We have been made new by his work. And it's our desire this morning that in all that we do, in this service and indeed throughout this coming week that we would be to the praise of your glory. That our lives would reflect the greatness of our God. That we might reflect who you are to our world. That others would see in us the love, the tenderness, the righteousness and the holiness of our triune God that they would come to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because you alone are worthy. I pray this morning that as we turn our attention to the word that you would allow us to glimpse again more clearly, more fully just how worthy you are and that that understanding would change how we live our lives moving forward, we pray. And we ask this for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated, and I just want to say that it's a blessing for Cindy and I to be back here to preach the word and to minister. I want to begin by making a couple of confessions. My first confession is that I am long-winded. Um, I pre Last time I was here, I preached 50 minutes, and I didn't think anybody would really notice so I came back this morning and I said to Wayne, I said, yeah, I kind of preached a little bit long last time I was here. And he goes, I remember. <laughs> Not cut to the quick. So I'm going to try to be more, uh, more brief this morning, a little bit more succinct. Um, so that's first confession. Second confession is this. <clears throat> I am prone to worry. Is anybody else in the room prone to worry or am I the only person who sins by falling into that. Okay, I think there's a few people who are telling the truth. There's a whole bunch of you who are lying. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I am prone to worry. My tendency is when I'm facing a stress, stressful or a difficult situation is usually to wake up around three o'clock in the morning. I don't know why three. And then I begin to toss and turn. I begin to fret. I begin to get stressed out about circumstances that really should not trouble me in most situations. I kind of think obsessively in the middle of the night about all the bad things that could happen. We took my father-in-law on a cruise a couple of weeks ago to Alaska. It's his 90th birthday, and he's not in great shape for 90. You know, he's in a wheelchair and, and you know, uses a cane. And, and I started thinking, 3 o'clock in the morning, what happens if the ship starts to sink? That's, that's, an, that's an incredibly great investment of my time to think about that, isn't it? But nonetheless, there I am, 3 o'clock in the morning, thinking about how do I get him off the ship? Not real bright. And maybe some of you are sitting here right now and you are worrying. 
And the situation that you're facing is far more significant, far more problematic than the situation that I just addressed. You might be worrying about a financial situation. The mortgage rates are going up and that presents a problem to you. You might be worrying about a relationship. You might be worrying about your children. You might be worrying about your career and your job. There, there are a myriad of things that you might be worrying about right now. And we know as Christians that it is a foolish thing to do. But somehow we can't stop. We know the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything. And we say, okay, I'm going to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But somehow, some way, that thought escapes and it comes back, it comes back to haunt us. And it just, it's always there. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, one of my one of the things that I do is I read through the Psalms repeatedly. I just start at one, go to 150 and start again. And I, I, I love when I get to Psalm 3 because Psalm 3 verse 6 says this, verse 5 says this, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now at first blush you might say, well what's so special about that verse? I did that last night. I lay down, I slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. What makes it so special is the context in which King David wrote that psalm. Psalm 3 is a psalm that David wrote the day after he was forced to flee from Jerusalem. His son Absalom had led a successful coup against his father. He had usurped his own throne. He had violated his concubines publicly on the roof of his palace. And now Absalom, his son, is seeking to kill King David, his father. And so as a consequence, David, along with some servants, some good friends, and about 600 loyal soldiers, flees Jerusalem. They go out of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and down into the Judean wilderness. And that night, he sleeps by the, by the river. 2 Samuel 15 tells us that David, as he's leaving the city, is weeping. His head is covered, indicating shame. He is walking barefoot, and he's being cruelly mocked by a relative of the previous king, King Saul. And so you think about that situation. Think about what David is feeling in those moments. The humiliation, the hurt, the rejection the fear, the anxiety, the pain, the sense of betrayal. At that night, it says, he laid down and slept. Now, that's an amazing thing. If that had been me, I'm not sure that I could have done that. I'm not sure that given those circumstances, I would have fallen asleep. It's probable, it's, it's likely that I would have tossed and turned. It's likely that my heart would have been pounding, that my palms would have been sweating, that I would have been thinking about all of the cat catastrophic things that have happened, and as a consequence, all of the, con the, the, the catastrophic things that are going to happen. But David sleeps. David sleeps. I want you to read the psalm with me if you have your Bibles. Go to Psalm 3 and let's, 
read this passage of Scripture because it is a magnificent and beautiful passage of Scripture. He speaks honestly to the Lord as he begins, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my, all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. These words were written by a man who obviously refused to allow worry to control him. These words were written by a man who found peace. Clearly, he found peace and a sense of quietness in his soul amid the stress, the fear, the anxiety, and the suffering that he was enduring in that particular moment. And here's the point. If it is possible for David in that circumstance to know this kind of peace, it is possible for us, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, to also know peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. So the question I want to ask this morning is this, where did David find this peace? How is this possible? Given the circumstances, given the, the context in which David is living, how is it possible for him to have such a tranquility and a peace? And what is it that we need to remember at three o'clock in the morning when we wake up and start fretting and start worrying and start being anxious? When our hearts are pounding and our hands are sweaty, what is it that we need to remember in order that we can, as the children of God, enjoy the blessing of peace that God has promised to us? And there are four things I want to point out in the next 50 minutes. <laughs> Kidding. The first thing is this, David listened selectively. He had selective hearing. Now you all know what selective hearing is, right? You tell your son or your daughter, I want you to go clean the room. They're right there. You go up a couple hours later, the room's not clean. I didn't hear you, mom. I didn't, I didn't know you wanted me to clean the room. You say, who wants ice cream? They're next door at the neighbor's in the basement, and somehow they hear ice cream. Oh, I want some ice cream. That's selective hearing. You hear, but you really don't hear. You hear, but you don't listen. David had heard a lot in the previous 24 hours. I won't go into a lot of it, but he had heard this. He had heard a servant tell him that the hearts of the men of Israel are now with Absalom. That would have been hard to hear. He had heard from a messenger that Ahithophel, his dear friend and trusted counselor, had betrayed him and was now working for Absalom, his son. That would have been tough to hear. As he was leaving Jerusalem, a relative of the previous king, Saul, a guy named Shimei, had cursed him. And I want to read to you what David heard. Now, this is Shimei's perspective on all that is happening to King David. Shimei said this, 2 Samuel 16, 8. 
The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And then here's the words I want you to listen to. See, see David, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Personally, I think what, what he heard as he was walking out of the city, what Shimei said to him would have cut the deepest. And the reason I think this is because of what had happened previously in his life. You know the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, how he had taken her, how he had murdered her, her, uh, murdered her husband Uriah. After David was confronted by Nathan, he confessed his sins. Nathan said this, and I don't, don't want you to turn there, but this is what Nathan said. As a consequence of David's sin, he says this to David. Now, therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is God speaking. And have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And so I'm sure that not only did David listen to what the messenger said about the men of Israel and about what the messenger told him about Ahithophel, his friend. He didn't just listen to Shimei and what he said. I am absolutely convinced there was a little voice in his head, a little nagging voice that just wouldn't go away that was saying, David, you are getting what you deserve. You are getting exactly what you deserve. This is what the prophet said was going to happen to you. And it has now happened. This is payback. I'm reaping now what I've sown. And it would be so easy for him to conclude that now there is no salvation for me in God. There's no hope. It's done. But somehow, with all of that ringing in his ears and that little small voice repeating over and over and over again, there's no salvation for you in God. You're, you deserve this. This is your just deserts, David. Somehow, this man was able to lie down, go to sleep, and wake up the next day and write this psalm. In verse 3, David says, Many are rising against me, and many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But David had selective hearing. David had very, very selective hearing. Instead of listening to the many, he listened to God. He focused on what he knew to be true about God. He focused on the nature and the character and the unchanging verities, the unchanging realities of the God of Israel. And he was able to say in verse 3, with absolute confidence, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, the glory, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Brothers and sisters, this is so critical. It is so, so critical that you understand this. It's so important. David chose to anchor and root himself in the character of the God of Israel. He had selective hearing. 
He could have easily listened to all of those things that were being said, all of that noise out there, all of that negative, pessimistic noise out there, or he could have listened to what he knew to be true about the God of Israel. And as a result of listening to God, he was able to say with confidence in his soul, I know that what the many are saying is lies. It's all fallacious. It's, it's falsehood. It's spurious. Had David listened to what the many were saying, many are, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. If he had listened to the many, if he had listened to that still small voice, that little satanic condemning voice, he would never have written Psalm 3. The reason he wrote Psalm 3 and the reason he slept so peacefully that night is because he knew the character of the God of Israel. He knew his God as a loving father. Previously, he had written Psalm 103, verse 12. And he knew that God had removed his sins as far as the east is from the west, that God remembered him, remembered them no more, that God had buried his sins in the depths of the sea, that he was forgiven entirely and completely. He was cleansed with his, he was made pure by the working of the God of Israel. He knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Lord was his shepherd. He had nothing to fear. And even though he was called the next day to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he knew that he was not going to be afraid because the Lord was with him. The Lord was there to comfort him. The many and those Vile little whisperings of Satan are designed to do one thing. They're designed to get you to question the nature and the character of God. Satan's purpose in waking you up at 3 o'clock in the morning so that you can worry about whether a ship's going to sink in the Bering Sea is, is not so that you can figure out a way to save your father-in-law from drowning. It's to cause you to question the character of God. That's why you wake up. That's why when we are worrying, we are sinning. It's always and ultimately to defame the character of God. His aim is to get us to question the nature of who God is. We'll never know peace in the storms of life until we settle this. We can listen to our circumstances. We can listen to what others say. We can listen to that little voice. We can listen to the media. We can listen to the naysayers. We can listen to all the Debbie Downers. Or we can listen to God. And that is a choice that we have to make. It's a choice that we have to make. What does God say? God tells us that we are absolutely and unconditionally loved. That we are treasured that we have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, that he set his love on us individually and personally, that he knows you by name, that every hair on your head is numbered, that you are precious to him, that you are like the apple of his eye, and he knows you intimately because he loves you. That's the truth. That's the pathway to sleep. That is the solution to worry, at least the beginning of it. We've got to learn to listen selectively. 
Listen to God. But secondly, David prayed passionately. David prayed passionately. Now, it's interesting. We're not told what he prayed. After recognizing that God was his shield about me, the glory and the lifter of my head, he says, I cried to the Lord and the Lord answered me. And I think the reason that we're not told the specifics about the prayer is that this passage of scripture is not intended to teach us about the content of prayer. It's intended to teach us about the nature of prayer. David cried aloud to the Lord. It was a prayer that was filled with passion. It was from the deepest place of his heart and soul. But I want you to notice something before we talk about the nature of the prayer. David didn't pray right away. The first thing he did was not pray. The first thing he did was get perspective. Many are saying, there's no salvation for me in God. It's hopeless. I'm getting what I deserve. My little voice in my head is condemning me. I'm guilty. Yes, I know. He didn't listen to that. He listened to God. And what did that do? Gave him perspective. It gave him perspective. And I want to say this carefully, but sometimes the best thing to do first is not to pray. Sometimes, a lot of times it is, but sometimes, especially in circumstances when you're being overwhelmed, the best thing to do is take the word of God in your hand and Remind yourself, get perspective about the nature and the character of God, particularly as to, as to how his character relates to you. That I am loved unconditionally and absolutely by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So David got perspective, and then he prayed. And he prayed this way. He prayed passionately. This kind of prayer, this kind of passionate prayer, this crying aloud to the Lord that I'm sure was filled with tears and anguish from the depths of his soul, this kind of prayer can only come from the heart of a man or a woman who understands the character of God, that God is our shield and our defender, that God loves us unconditionally, so that he is the one, my glory, and the lifter of my head. That picture is, is it's a parental picture. It's a picture of a mom or a dad going to a little kid who has done something wrong, and they know that they have done something wrong, and you, put your, you get down in one knee, and you look them in the eye, and their head's down like this, and you lift their chin, and you look them in the eye, and you say, Honey, I love you, and there's nothing that will ever stop me from loving you. I'm crazy about you. Yeah, you messed up. We all mess up. But I'm for you. I love you. And that's never going to stop. That's what David knew in the character of God. That's what he had experienced in his sin with Bathsheba. That's why he was able to write Psalm 51 so boldly and so freely. This kind of passionate prayer emanates from a man or a woman, not based on the character of the man or a woman, but based on the character of God, who we know God to be. No guilt, no shame, but a tremendous sense of boldness, expectancy. I think it's the kind of prayer that Paul requires us to pray when he says this, don't be anxious about anything. 
Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about it. Don't worry about anything. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know what? Worry sin. It is and it isn't. I think it is if we live in it. If it becomes the, our master. If we live fearful lives. If we're constantly full, full of anxiety. But Paul worried. 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the challenges of ministry. And he says, I'm, I'm constantly anxious for the churches. It's exactly the same word, both places, written by the same guy. So he's talking about the same thing. Paul worried about his churches. But he does, did he wring his hands? Did he stay awake at night? Did he toss and turn? No. What did he do? Well, he did, I'm sure, what he told us to do. He didn't live in a state of anxiety. But in every circumstance by prayer, asking God with thanksgiving, he made his requests made known to God and then went to sleep. Being tempted to worry isn't a sin. Feeling anxiety is not a sin. Feeling a sudden burst of adrenaline and feeling fearful at a circumstance isn't a sin. But living in that state is. Living in that state is. So that's why the Apostle Paul says, folks, we're broken people. I think this is what he's saying. We're broken people. All of us struggle with fear and anxiety and worry and stress. But don't live there. Don't be anxious. But in everything, in every circumstance, regardless of what the circumstance is, by praying with thanksgiving because of the character of God, because who you know God to be, let your requests be made known to God. And then here's what he says. And God will solve all your problems and take away every challenge and make life wonderful, right? No, not at all. And the peace of God, which passes human understanding, which can't be defined from sort of using human categories, it doesn't make sense to us, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God will give you his peace. And that's a promise. That's not something that we should see as, oh man, maybe super Christians get to experience that, but I sure don't. This is for the children of God. If you know who God is, if you have been redeemed by his blood, if you are one of his blood-bought children, if you are a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, this is your inheritance, peace, that passes all understanding, that doesn't make sense from a human perspective. The peace of God filling us with that sense of contentment. He guards us. It's a military term used of a garrison that would be employed to keep attackers out. He guards our hearts and minds from the constant bombardment of that worry because we're at rest in the knowledge that we are loved by God, that he is good, that we can trust him and we can rest there. Um, I can tell you this story really quickly. Um, it was, my, my daughter had her birthday yesterday, right? 13th of August was Ashley's birthday. She was 35. That was a Friday. We brought her home from the hospital. 
Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, I think you had to go to the store and do a few things, do some running around. I'm at home with Ashley, my daughter. She's there in a little bassinet. I had a busy life. I was leaving my first church after being a youth pastor for six years, had made, built a lot of relationships, good friendships that were dear to me, to us. Uh, I just had surgery to straighten my nose. A um, little personal piece of information there, but <laughs> now I can breathe. Um, I was directing a camp at, in, in a couple of weeks, and I was trying to get, it was a denominational-wide thing, and I was trying to get all these things done. I was having a house built, um, and it wasn't going to be finished in time, apparently, for us to move in. And there was probably a pile of other things going on in my life. And bringing my daughter home was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back emotionally for me. So I'm sitting there. She's sleeping. I remember we had a little townhouse at um, McAllen and Finch. And we're, I'm sitting there, and I start feeling all these emotions, fear, anxiety, panic. My hands started to sweat. My whole body started to sweat. So I, I was a good friend of the doctor who delivered our baby. So I phoned him, and I said, uh, I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling very, very weird. He says, I'll come over after work, and we'll see you. So he came over, and he says, I think you're having panic attacks, Paul. And I said, me? I, I'm invincible. I, I don't have panic attacks. And I just, I just began to slide down this emotional well into this dark place. And uh, I stayed there for a while, um, 72 hours, I think. I was in the basement. Cindy brought a mattress down to the basement, and I was sleeping in the basement. I couldn't sleep. The phone would ring. I'd cry. I'd hear the baby cry. I'd cry. I was a mess. The only peace that I got was when Cindy would come down the stairs with her little girl, and... She'd open the Psalms, and she'd read the Psalms. And it was like kind of the darkness lifted a little bit. But when she stopped and went upstairs again to look after Ashley, it kind of came crashing down on me. So that was Tuesday. Those Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were the darkest days of my life. God taught me so much in those days about pride and self-reliance and so many other things. Anyway, Friday... Cindy said, Paul, you've got to help me. I can't do this on my own. I need you to go to the store and do something. So I get into our 1987 Topaz, beautiful little car, and um, I drove, and I, I looked at the seat beside me. I, I'm sitting in the driveway, and I looked at the seat beside me, and I said, Lord, if you are who you say you are, I need you to show up in this car right now. I need you here with me. I need you to do something in my heart because something's broken and I need healing. I need peace. I need your presence. I need the peace of God. And I drove from McCowan in the 401 along to Bayview in the 401 to go to the Bayview Mall to do some shopping there. And I get out of the car. And it was, it's interesting. There's a lot of Jewish people there, right? I get out of the car and I hear myself singing the song, How Great Thou Art as I'm walking through the parking lot. There's been other times in my life when I've cried to God in desperation, but that's kind of the time where it was most acute. And he showed up. 
and the peace of God, which completely passed human comprehension for me, touched my heart. Now, it took me about six months to kind of figure out what was going on and, and, and work through some of these issues that I, that I suddenly uncovered or my circumstances uncovered in my life. But God met me in that 1987 topaz that day. And I knew the peace of God. Did I deserve it? No. Was I special because I was a youth pastor and youth pastors are more noble than other? No. You know, you know Matt. <laughs> it's entirely because of the grace of God. It's entirely because of the character of God and the fact that he redeemed me and he loved me and he showed up. So perspective led to prayer. And so David rested. <clears throat> he laid down and slept and he woke again for the Lord sustained him. Now, I'm sure that David posted sentries. I'm sure that he told his soldiers where to stand, and I'm sure he put people on the path to make sure they wouldn't be surprised and attacked in the night. But here's the thing. After having got perspective and after having prayed, when there was nothing else to do, David did nothing. This is so critical. When there was nothing left to do, he did nothing. Now, if you're a worrier like me and somebody says, you know what, I can't do anything about it, I'm not going to worry about it, I want to jump in and say, well, somebody's got to worry about it, let me. Let me get busy worrying. Let me get busy thinking about all the cat catastrophic things that can possibly happen. David didn't do that. Now, when there are things that we can do and should do, we should do them. When we need to ask forgiveness, we should. When we need to see a doctor, we should. When we need to stop spending money, we should. When we need to start exercising, we should. But when there is nothing left to do, do nothing. And doing nothing is not easy. But we're so, at least I am, inclined to do something when there's really nothing left to do. I think a lot of us in our culture are the same way. Do you know the most prescribed medications in North America are medications designed to deal with the consequences of stress and worry and fear? Mental health issues, heart and circulatory issues, and gastrointestinal issues. Not always, but often have their root, have their source in stress, in worry, in anxiety, in fear. And instead, oftentimes, Christians, instead of experiencing the amazing grace of God, the amazing peace of God, when there is nothing else to do, instead of just resting in God, we get busy worrying, and it's killing us. Fundamentally, at the heart of it, worry is an emotional, physical, and spiritual statement that we do not believe that God is good and we don't trust his character. And this is a simple point, but folks, when there is nothing left to do, do what David did. 
Do nothing. Rest. Give it over to the Lord. Put it in his capable hands. Remember who he is and remember that he loves you. He is passionate about you. You know, one of the things I worry about is, is my grandkids. And, and I, I lie in bed thinking, okay, God, protect my grandkids. I always pray that God will save them. I got two grandkids and, and one on the way. And my heart's prayer for them is that God save them. Let them be covenant kids. But sometimes I'll wake up in the night and I'll think, oh man, don't let anything bad happen to them. You know, God loves them more than I do. God is more committed to them than I could. He's more committed to them than his parent, their parents. That's how God loves us. And it's so foolish for us to when there's nothing left to do, to do anything. Just give it to the Lord and rest. So he got perspective, he prayed, and he found peace. And the last thing in verse 6 through 8 is that he refused to be afraid. He chose not to be afraid. The next morning, verse 6, he wakes up and he says, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now, David isn't speaking uh, using uh, hyperbole here. There were literally thousands of people who could descend on him at any moment and kill him and all of his followers. Like he's not speaking here uh, sort of metaphorically. This was reality for David. And he says, I will not be afraid. What he's saying essentially is, I don't know what today holds. Lord, I don't know what you have for me today, but I will not be dominated by fear. I will not allow fear to control me. So how did David do that? I think the answer fundamentally is in the second last verse of the psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David knew that salvation, his salvation in that circumstance was going to be 100% of God. This is what he says in verse 6. I think the NASB translates it a little better. It gives you a better sense of the tense. It says this, Arise, O God, and save me, for you have struck my enemies on the cheek. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. David is looking back. He is reflecting back on God's faithfulness throughout his life. And he knows 100%, without any equivocation, that God is the God of salvation. He saved him from the lion and the bear. He saved him from Goliath. He saved him from Saul. He saved him from the Philistines. He saved him over and over and over and over again. David knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that it wasn't his intellect or his military prowess that saved him. It was always that salvation was of the Lord. God had saved him countless times in countless hopeless circumstances. And as a consequence, David trusted God. And he rests in the knowledge that he is loved and treasured by God. And ultimately, I think this is the key for us overcoming anxiety. Remember that our salvation is 100% of God. I don't know if, does anybody here listen to the Ligonier podcast, R.C. Sproul? Yeah, some people do. 
this, it's a great podcast. If, you got, if you're driving to work and you've got 25 minutes every morning, listen to R.C. Sproul's Dead Now Ligonier podcast. What an amazing, amazing ministry that is. Anyways, this week, Dr. Steve Larson was speaking about uh, what, he, what he calls radical depravity or total depravity. And it speaks, total depravity speaks of the condition of a man or a woman before he or she is intersected by the grace of God and made alive in Christ. And it just reminded me again of who I was before Jesus entered my life, before the Spirit of God changed me. And some of the things he said in these two sermons on Monday and Tuesday of this past week were this, that I was a slave of sin. My will was completely bound by sin. I was deaf to the gospel. I couldn't hear it. I was blind to the truth. I couldn't see it. I was incapable of apprehending the truth. I couldn't understand it. I was a rebel to God. I was spiritually dead. My heart was a heart of stone, impervious to the truth, and absolutely cold to God. I loved darkness more than light. I loved wickedness more than righteousness. That's who I was. I was dead in my sin. I was completely spiritually insensate to God. I wanted nothing to do with him. That's how the Bible describes any man or any woman before his or her salvation. And it struck me again how magnificent is the salvation of our God. Because here we are. People who were dead in our sins. Like, think of it, dead. Absolutely dead. You, you've never heard somebody picks up the, you pick up the phone and you say, hey, did you hear? Bill just died. None of you have ever said, well, how dead is he? Is he totally dead or just, no, he's, pretty, he's dead completely. Okay, thanks for letting me know. When Paul used that word in Ephesians 2, that we were dead, he means it. And none of us, none of us would be here. I would not be here, standing here right now, were it not for the fact that salvation is of God. And you're here because salvation is of God. He quickened you. He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus retraced the steps of his progenitor, the King David. And he came from the wilderness of Judea and up to the Mount of Olives and down through the Kidron Valley and through the Garden of Gethsemane and up into Jerusalem and he went to a cross. Why? For you. For you. And he paid the price for your sins. God punished Jesus for my sin and your sin. And he gave us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he applies it 100% to my account. So now that he sees me covered over in the righteousness of Christ. And at some point, the Spirit of God, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, quickened us. He quickened you. He made you alive. Those are the words that Paul uses in Ephesians 2. When you were dead... Because of his great love for us, he made us alive. That's how much he loves us. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the antidote to, sin, to, to, to worry. The gospel is the antidote to fear. One of my favorite verses is from, from 
1 John 4, where, Paul, where, where John says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect, the perfect love, perfect love was demonstrated in the gospel. The gospel is perfect love. And as we understand it personally, it just banishes fear. I want to close by reading Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 30, bring it verse 33. Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? What circumstances, what individuals? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or physical threats, sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's the antidote to worry. Get perspective, pray passionately, know the peace of God and quit worrying. And at the end, just praise, just praise and keep on praising. Think about the gospel, sing hymns in the night, thank him for his grace, thank him for his love, worship him and it will banish fear. Perfect love of the gospel casts out fear. Amen? Amen.